Welcome to Covenant and Kingdom, new study that we're starting, and I am uh, really eager to get started. Um, it's been a joy for me to prepare this study, and I'm um, just excited to share with you guys some of the beautiful depths of covenant theology. So let me open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started tonight. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this gathering of your people, Lord. We thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to gather around your word, Lord God, which is truth. And Lord, I just pray that you'd please give us grace as we seek to dive a little bit deeper into the depths of Scripture, Lord. We know that your wisdom is unsearchable, Lord, that your ways are inscrutable. And we are just uh, so excited to... uh, by the grace of your Holy Spirit and by his enlightening uh, to just start to see a little bit more deeply into your plan of redemption. So, Lord, I do pray that you would please let this uh, entire study be an edifying experience for all of us, Lord. I do pray that you would give me grace and wisdom to bring forth your word with clarity. And, Lord, I do pray that you would give us all hearts and minds to receive the word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 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 So I'd like you guys to turn, please, to Hebrews chapter 10. That's a passage. We're not going to really be, um, you know, diving into that tonight, but we're going to think about it a little bit. Just tonight is an introduction to the whole concept of covenant theology because I understand that for most of us, it's probably a pretty foreign concept to us. And even as I was, you know, thinking about, you know, we finished Acts last spring, and I was thinking about, you know, what do I want to do for this next study? What what would be helpful for people? And there was a real, I had a real urge to do covenant theology, but part of me was thinking, well, you know, we're living in a time right now where there's just so much upheaval, so much uh, chaos all over the place, and, you know, maybe it would be more practical to address some of that, or just to do another study through a book of the Bible, something like that, because I think with covenant theology, sometimes like the way that we think of it, it's, you know, yeah, it's a fun debate or conversation for theological Christians to have in times where things are mostly going good, but in times like right now where there's just so much darkness in the world and so much that we need to be confronting, is that really the time to do a class like this? But uh, in all reality, covenant theology is extremely practical and applicable into our lives, even from uh, you know the marriage as being a covenant, our family relationships, our relationships as church members, our relationship even to the state as citizens is a covenant relationship. And so it's a very important concept for us, and um, above all, covenant theology really opens up the entire narrative of Scripture, and it really helps us to understand, especially some of those things in the Old Testament that are harder for us to understand or put in their context. And so, you know, whatever times we're living in, whether they're easier times or more difficult times, we need to know the Word of God. And so, it's always an applicable study. And again, I pray that it's fruitful for all of us. But all that being said, um, it, I'm not going to lie, it is. It, it can be somewhat complicated at times. We're going to talk about some terms and some concepts tonight that are probably going to be a little bit confusing and hopefully will become more clear as we go on. Um, so it can. some of it can be a little bit 
heady. It can be a little bit daunting, but um, you know, Lord willing, it, you know, we're able to go through it in a way that uh, is really helpful for us and that you know help us kind of wrap our minds around it. Because I'm telling you, it is rich and it does help. And so, the reason why I want to look briefly at Hebrews chapter 10 tonight is because. You know, if we're asking the question, why study covenant theology? Why bother with a subject like this? Really, the whole book of Hebrews is uh, an examination of how the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, kind of leads naturally to the New Covenant in Christ and how that gives us a grounding and an assurance of our faith. And that's really what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do. He's warning them against going back to kind of the Old Testament sacrifices and the temple and the ceremonies and all that because there's nothing left there because we have a firm assurance of faith. So let's look real quick at Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. He writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil, I'm sorry, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we love that passage. We love you know, that full assurance of faith in Christ Jesus, Christ as the foundation of our faith. But to really understand the depth of assurance that the writer to Hebrews is uh, exhorting us to, we have to understand everything that came before, because this section in Hebrews 10 is the conclusion of a big section of that letter that's examining the covenant of Christ and why, because of that covenant, we can be assured of our faith, be assured of our relationship to God through Christ. That's the foundation of the assurance. So if we want that full assurance of faith, it helps to understand the the covenantal aspects uh, that he's talking about throughout the whole epistle to Hebrews. And even the some of the language in there, some of the terminology used that, you know, it's kind of easy for us to overlook. But I hope that as we go through this class, you start to see a lot of the terms are extremely and intentionally covenantal. When he talks about, you know, holy place, blood, uh, the curtain of flesh, uh, sprinkled clean, priest, house of God, washed, pure, all of that is covenantal language. And so if we are to you know, experience that deep assurance that he's exhorting us to. It really, really helps to understand that. And so this is just one example. The reason I bring this passage up is because it's one example of why it's important for us to study covenant theology. Uh, it's Understanding covenant is essential for that deep and abiding assurance of faith. Um, and... Just as we go through tonight, um, feel free, honestly, for those of you guys who haven't been 
to you know, my Bible studies before, you know, you guys who have been there know it's pretty casual. Please, and especially tonight, hang with me. If you are confused after tonight, come back next week. Tonight's probably going to be the most confusing study because we're going to look at these terms and concepts and some vocabulary, but it's important to lay the groundwork. Um, but if you guys have any questions or if you need me to go back over something or to repeat something, please stop me and ask. We can take time with tonight. We can break this study up into two weeks if we have to. Um, so don't don't be afraid if you feel like you're falling behind to, you know, please just uh, ask and I'll be happy to, to answer your questions. So Christianity is all about, basically and fundamentally, Christianity is about our relationship to the living creator God. It's the way that we are made right with God. And the way that God relates to us is by covenant. It is absolutely foundational. Um, and so it's keep in mind, there is a creature-creator relationship that is inherent. We are created by God, and so we have a relationship with him just by virtue of that fact. And so does the whole rest of the universe. And so all of creation, human beings and all the rest of creation, is expected and commanded and compelled to obey God's law word, his law order. And so even when God declares in Genesis 1, let there be light, that is a command and the response from the natural created world is for there to be light, the light to exist. And so in that sense, there's that, uh, we owe God obedience, right? We owe him, apart from any other considerations, obedience to his natural law. We are his image bearers. We're called to reflect his image in this world. And when we do that, as we do that, our response is not, okay, God, I've kept these laws. Now give me the reward. Our response is we are servants who have just done what is our duty. There's nothing special about keeping God's law. That's the base expectation. But as soon as God goes beyond that base expectation, as soon as God promises some sort of reward or some sort of blessing for obedience or promises out of his free grace to do something for us, now we're entering into the territory of covenant when God binds himself to his creatures and tells them, if you do this, then I will do this. That's a covenant. And that's the way that God relates to us. Uh, it's pleased our sovereign Lord that, you know, to the relationship that he has with his creatures is a covenantal relationship. And, um, you know, there's certain obligations, certain promised blessings, foundationally, um, our relationship with God is covenantal. And so if we want to, again, if the whole of the Christian faith basically is about our relationship to the living God, if we want to understand that relationship, then we have to understand covenant. There's no way around that. So again, what I'm trying to do is just explain the rationale for doing a study like this, why it's so important. Uh, so those are a couple considerations. Our relationship with God, uh, the, the assurance that, that God wants us to have in our faith, and additionally, uh, covenant theology should give us a much deeper understanding of and a greater devotion to scripture. That's another reason why this is an important study to have and uh, another way that it should be very helpful for us. 
you guys know, I've said this in my previous studies, I feel like I've said this a lot, that one of my great desires as an elder in the church, as a teacher, is for you guys to be excited about studying the Word of God and be able to go home and study God's Word for yourselves and understand it and grasp it more deeply. That's, you know, that's a huge goal of our ministry. And Covenant helps us to understand that. It helps to kind of give us a framework for understanding Scripture and like the grand narrative of Scripture from creation to consummation at the end of history. It gives us uh, this framework for understanding God's unfolding plan of redemption. And it also helps us to see, I mentioned earlier, um, the Old Testament and how we can really struggle with the Old Testament. We can struggle with um, you know, certain portions of it and you know, what's this mean? How is this applicable? How is this relatable to me? And I, I'm not saying, and I don't want to present it as if, Understanding covenant theology is like some secret key where all of a sudden all of scripture is going to make perfect sense. That's not what's that's not what it is. But a basic understanding of the covenantal framework of scripture, it does help us to think about the Old Testament in its proper context and then how it can apply to us as Christians living today. So it should be helpful. Again, it doesn't illuminate absolutely everything there's parts of the old testament that are very strange and you know hard for us to wrap our minds around but this does help this is helpful for us it also as i mentioned before helps us to understand our duties and obligations to other people you know we live in an age right now where we are generally very individualistic and even in our relationships with others we tend to think of them as elective or voluntary you know well I will have this person in my life as long as it's working for me. But as soon as this relationship stops working for me, I'm going to cut it off. The idea of covenant, whether you're thinking about a marriage or church membership or family relationships, uh, it does help for us to understand that we have very real obligations to others that we can't opt out of. We have covenant relationships with the people around us that... God has instituted, which he binds together and which we can't break without consequences. We don't have the authority just to say, I'm going to just, you know, cut these people off for no reason just because this relationship's inconvenient to me. It's it's helpful for us if we start thinking covenantally, then we start to take a little bit more seriously our real obligations before God to one another, to the people in our lives. So like... Like, yeah. for example, might be marriage. Mm-hmm. The vows that are taken, there's permits there, there's obligations that you work through. As Absolutely. Like so many people today just say, well, this isn't working for me, I'm out. But that's like a covenant where you are mm-hmm. committed to. Yeah, marriage is a perfect example because it's, and when we think of things covenantally, we think of it beyond just my relationship yeah. with this other human being. It is God is a witness to this relationship and God is enforcing these covenant obligations. And so if you walk away from that, if you break your covenant, then there are real consequences from God. God is witness uh, to all of this. And so when we're thinking in that direction, instead of just thinking about what's right in front of us, but thinking, okay, God has tied me to, whether it's in marriage, God has tied me to my spouse. And in the church, God has tied me to these fellow church members. I have duties to these people, and I can't just say, forget this, I'm out of here.
So that's another area where this applies to us and, and can help us. Um, and also, like I said, it should give us a more a, a more deep and a more thoughtful understanding of Scripture. And one thing that I pray that we avoid in this class, because this can happen um, when you study covenant theology. Like I said, some of it can be a little bit technical. Some of it can be a little bit, you know, high theological, and it can become very formulaic or, you know, like you're looking at different data points. You're just trying to kind of piece it all together and then kind of be cold and distant. And I really hope that we avoid this. And what I've found, even in just preparing the study, what I hope that you guys found in participating in it is that far from being kind of this cold theological doctrine, covenant theology really does, uh, it should lead us to a higher worship and a greater devotion of God because what we'll see throughout this class, and again, what I've found, is that God, his plan and his purposes are so far beyond our comprehension. They're so far beyond what we can understand. If God just told us plainly, this is what I'm doing in history, this is my plan, and just expressed it to us in explicit terms, we would not be able to understand any portion of it. It is so far beyond anything that we can grasp. And when you start looking at covenant theology, you see that God, you know, we talk about God condescending to us in his scripture and speaking to us in ways that we can understand and what we see in covenant theology is that God uses pictures and symbols and images and uh, you know different sorts of institutions to communicate things to us that we could never understand if He told us plainly. It is, it's truly amazing the way that God, you know, for lack of a better word, dumbs it down for us to make it on a level that we can understand. And I really hope that as we dive into this, you guys find that as well. One example of this, just briefly, again, is marriage. We know from what Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriage, ultimately, its purpose is to be a picture of Christ's relationship to his people. That is what marriage, more than anything, is supposed to do. Uh, And so, you know, there's this mystical union between Christ and the church, and it's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to even put into words. And so God gives us this picture of two individuals, a husband and wife, becoming one flesh, loving one another as they love themselves, sacrificing, submitting, all of that. And Paul says the reason for that is to show you this is the relationship. This is like the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, again, marriage is for other things, but Ultimately, that's the reason for the institution. That's just one example of God using pictures, symbols, images to communicate things to us that we have such a hard time understanding and are really far beyond our comprehension. Um, and so, do you have a question? What's up? I was just going to say, um, you know how they say uh, you're alive, one don't question a day. Um, <laughs> There's no dumb questions in this class. <laughs> so this is like mainly for, for believers, the covenant relationship. Because like if you weren't a believer, God doesn't even enter your mind. How about it? God's not important to you. In a sense, that's true. And as we go further in, again, tonight, broad overview, 
as we go further in, we'll kind of examine the different covenants of Scripture and who's involved and what they do. Um, but in a sense, you're right. There is a special covenant relationship between God and his people, believers. However, there's another sense in which everybody, and, and we'll talk about this from next week even when we start talking about creation, where all people are in a form of covenant relationship to God. But like I said, as we go further on and we start to look at more detail, hopefully that becomes more clear. Right, yeah. Yeah. Because I know Pastor Joe said uh, on Sunday Mm -hmm. uh, that God wrote in our our hearts. Right, right. And that's, I listened to your sermon today, but that is, you know, a testament that, you know, the fact that even unbelievers, even people that never think about God are still held accountable for God, that's part of that is because there is a covenant relationship there just uh, that, you know, was established with Adam and then with Noah. But we'll talk more about that in the the next few weeks. But I hope that, you know, so far you guys are starting to see that this is an important subject. It's something that, you know, is worth our time and our energy and our effort to study. And it also is important that we're very careful about how we do it. And again, that's part of the reason why I want to do this longer introduction tonight, because, you know, we want to make sure that we are understanding these concepts and categories and these different terms. One thing that's, again, a a pitfall that can happen when you start to go down this covenant theology road is that you can start to sort of formulate uh, this kind of system and then start to try to jam different parts of scripture into it to make it fit. So you'll start to study, and you'll see, okay, I see this connection here, and this is kind of like this, so this must be kind of the big system, this big scheme of scripture, and then you'll take events, narratives, passages that don't exactly fit, and you'll kind of rework them to make them fit into this system that we've created. We want to work very hard to avoid that. Um, We need to start with scripture always and let scripture uh, define the system, define the terms. So really what we're doing, we're not trying to come up with this method of reading scripture or a system to try to understand scripture. What we're trying to do is see what scripture has to say to us, has to say about itself. And I hate to use a word like this because it seems kind of like corny or like a buzzword, but it's almost like we are discovering uh, the, the, aren't I write it down? We're trying to understand, discover the way that scripture is presented to us. We're trying to understand it in its own terms um, and not try to kind of build this system to fit it in. So that's something to to watch out for. And one of the ways that we watch out for this, what's up, Don? Well, with that pitfall you were mentioning, I know you were trying to be general so as not to go like over somebody's head or give an example that you might not understand, but can you give a specific example, like trying to fit something into the covenant frame that may not really fit? Um, how about I will in a minute? Okay. I will. Because one of the ways that we avoid that pitfall is um, by remembering some really key kind of overarching principles. Uh, so keep this in mind as we go through this entire class, just a few principles that, um, you know, that we should try to remember. The first one is the law-gospel distinction. Um, This is basic, but it's very foundational. As we go through, we're going to be talking about different covenants. And in some covenants, God says to people, if you do these works, then I will do this for you. Then I will give you blessing and life and things like that. And 
sometimes it can get a little bit confusing and we can start to think, wait a minute, is God promising to you know, give eternal life, to give salvation based on works, based on works yes. of the law? It's, we need to keep in mind the law gospel distinction from ever since the fall, ever since the fall into sin, salvation has only ever been through the grace of the gospel as the gospel is presented. That's the only way of salvation. Um, it, God has never offered to reconcile people to himself by them keeping works of the law. Since the fall, there's been two categories of people. Either you are in Adam, meaning you're dead in your sins, or you're in Christ, meaning that you are resurrected, alive, justified, sanctified, glorified. So keep that in mind. Did you have something to say? Yeah, I just think, John, that would be a little bit of an example of trying to, um, for instance, <clears throat> not understand the nature of the covenant of the law. When we get to that with Moses, a lot of people ended up starting to try to keep that law in order to please God and perhaps find a way to you know, find favor with him in order, not simply out of obedience because of God's grace, but all, but in a way to merit his favor and love or to keep his favor and love. So you can misconstrue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even thinking about like how we might devise a system, there are some, and I also I want to be very gracious in this class because covenant theology is complicated. It is you know a tricky subject, and there are so many great theologians who have devoted so much time and skill to this and have come up with different ideas. A lot of different schools of thoughts. There are many different schools of thoughts, and there are a lot of sound, absolutely biblical Christians who disagree on elements of covenant theology. And so, you know, it's important for us. Like I, I told you guys, I'm really heavily using this book by Sam Renahan. I I find this book to be very insightful and very accurate. Um, But that's not to say that there are not other schools of thoughts that are, you know, that do justice to scripture and maybe come to a little bit of different conclusions. But one of the ways where our kind of system can get in the way of just taking scripture as it presents itself is you were talking about Moses and the law, which is when we get there, you'll see it's very clearly a covenant where God says, do this and be blessed. Keep these laws and you will receive these blessings. And people will try to turn that around and say, well, really, it's God's giving free grace, even though he's saying my, you know, these blessings depend on you doing these works. That's a way where we can sort of try to cram scripture into a system where it doesn't necessarily fit. Um, so that's one thing, the law gospel distinction. Keep in mind, no matter what, salvation, being reconciled to God, always is and always has been through faith alone, by grace alone, in the gospel, as the gospel is presented. Um, Second big principle to consider to try to avoid this systematizing is that each covenant is unique in its own way and has to be examined on its own terms, meaning we just have to look at every covenant specifically. This is an... Sometimes you get into the issue where, like I said, the covenants are unique, but there's a lot of continuity, a lot of similarity between different covenants. Uh, you'll see a lot of you know, different strands that seem to flow very smoothly, and sometimes that can lead us to think that, okay, this is the way every covenant is. Because I see this pattern in two or three covenants, that means they all must work this way. 
We can't think like that. We need to look at every covenant on its own term. What does it promise? What does it require? What's the basis of the promise? Um, this is another place where, an area where those who baptize babies and those who baptize believers, where there's a little bit of a divergence. So with those who would uh, believe in infant baptism, pedo-baptism, they see the continuity between the covenants that's really there. And you know they see okay in the covenant with Abraham the you know, the 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 children of the covenant members were circumcised as infants and so in the new covenant we should give the covenant sign of baptism to our infants. Obviously, it's a more complicated argument than that. We'll talk a lot more about circumcision and baptism when we get to Abraham, get to the New Testament, but uh, that's one of those areas where. You can see some of the continuity and then say, therefore, this must be the principle that we apply. We take this principle from the old and apply it to the new instead of looking and seeing, okay, what was the purpose of the covenant with Abraham? What did it promise? What's the purpose of the new covenant? What does it promise? Where are they the same? Where are they different? So what's up, Don? I was kind of focused on Gia and Leo, but Mm -hmm. if I heard you correctly, you were mentioning one of the mistakes that a Presbyterian might make with uh, taking the, the covenant that was made with circumcision and then applying it further in the New Testament with, mm-hmm. with um, baptizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the areas where we can kind of have a system and instead of, like, again, what I what I hope to examine as we get, you know, again, we'll, we'll talk way more about this as we get there. That's just by way of example, something, uh, you know, a, an area where, this can be tricky and we need to watch out that we're not letting our system define what how scripture presents itself. Um, third thing, and we're going to spend a little bit of time here um, because this is really important to understanding covenant theology and the whole redemptive narrative of scripture is this concept of the mystery of Christ. Paul used that phrase a few times in the New Testament. In fact, does anybody uh, want to read if somebody would turn to Ephesians 2 and another person to Colossians 1. If not, I can read them, but if anybody wants to, that's great. Um, yeah, do you want to look at Colossians 1? Um, the story of Scripture is, again, about how man is made right, made right with God. It's about the triumph of the Messiah in his seed over the serpent in his seed, right? That's the grand narrative of Scripture. Um, and in the Old Testament, what we see is God working out that narrative through a specific people, through the Jews. And God in the Old Testament makes a, a very real covenantal division between Jews and Gentiles. Now, Gentiles could could enter the covenant community. They could convert. They could be circumcised. But broadly speaking, God institutes this division between Jews and Gentiles in the Old Testament as he works through Israel to bring Christ into the world. Excuse me. And then after Christ is brought into the world uh, and you know completes his work, now all of a sudden in the New Testament, uh, there's a lot of explanation about how God abolished that fundamental distinction between Jews and Gentiles and is now... Uh, bringing both categories of people together as one people of God in Christ Jesus. And really, I mean, 
as, as we read the New Testament, I mean, it's astonishing how much of the New Testament is dedicated to trying to explain how God took these two distinct people and made them one people in Christ. Um, and so, did anyone turn to Ephesians 2? Pops, you got the, Can you read verses um, 11 through 16? Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so that, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Thank you. Um, And then if you go even a little bit further down in Ephesians um, chapter 3, in verse 4, Paul goes on to write, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. There's that phrase, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So you see him using that language, the mystery of Christ, referring to the Gentiles, not just the Jews being the heirs of the promises, but the Gentiles also, one people of God under Christ. And then, Dom, you have Colossians. Can you read um, verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 24 through 29? Mm-hmm. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Thank you. So there again you see, um, he says, you know, he refers to this mystery and he says that uh, this mystery is the revelation of how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory in Christ. That that is, and then later on in Colossians, he says, the mystery of Christ, the mystery is Christ in you, as in, in the Gentiles. So this is referred to in the New Testament. What exactly is he talking about, and how does this apply to our understanding of covenant theology? Um, one of the things that we 
emphasize in our teaching and really as you know reformed Christians we really uh, rejoice in and are serious about is that all of scripture is about Christ right we recognize that we you know Christ is revealed throughout the Old Testament that it points to him that it's fulfilled in him all of that um, and so we do understand all of redemptive history reveals Christ although the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, reveals Christ incompletely. It reveals him as a mystery. And so as we're trying to understand, because part of covenant theology is understanding the historical process of redemptive history, right? We're trying to understand it as it unfolds. And so we need to understand um, the Old Testament reveals Christ as a mystery, and we need to be careful that we're not trying to make the Old Testament reveal more of Christ than it actually does. That's what we mean by the mystery of Christ. Because for us, it can be easy to kind of look back on the Old Testament and see, okay, yes, I see, you know, this is Christ, and here's Christ here, and here he is there. But remember, like I just mentioned, so much of the New Testament is dedicated to trying to explain how God did this, how God took these two people, took the Gentiles and made them one, that how the Jewish Messiah could purchase a, a people for himself that had nothing to do with ethnic Judaism, that had nothing to do with physical descent from Abraham. You know, uh, the apostles before Christ's ascension, what did they ask? Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Peter had to be uh, receive revelation in a vision to understand that the dietary laws were no longer... Uh, in force, um, there's the the whole Jerusalem Council, the the, uh, the question of circumcision, whether or not new Christians or Gentile converts had to be circumcised. That all of that has to do with this mystery of Christ, how Christ brings all people, Jew and Gentile, under the one head of Jesus Christ, and that's pointed to in the Old Testament. But it's a profound mystery. It's hidden in a lot of ways. And so we can't downplay how profound this mystery is. We need to understand, yes, the Old Testament reveals Christ, and we need to find out how it does. But we can't try to make it reveal more of Christ than it actually does. Does that make sense? I know that you know, maybe a little tricky. Um, but those are the, you know, a few main principles to keep in mind to try to keep us on the right path. So now... Let me grab this out let me know what he's using. Now, the question that we have to ask then, okay, what is covenant theology? You know, so we've talked about a lot of background, reasons why it's important, but what exactly is it? I have two definitions in here. Um, the one, Samuel Renahan, the guy whose book I highly recommend, uh, he says, covenant theology is the study and explanation of the united purpose of God in all of history, past, present, and future. Ligon Duncan, um, he's Presbyterian, he's a seminary professor. He defines it a framework for biblical interpretation informed by exegetical, biblical, and systematic theology that recognizes that the redemptive history revealed in Scripture is explicitly articulated through a succession of covenants, thus providing an organizing principle for biblical theology. Longer definition, I prefer the more concise one. Basically, it's... Covenant theology is trying to have a comprehensive understanding of what God has revealed in his word through the covenants as we progress through history. That's essentially what it is. Um, and so 
in order to do this, if we're going to understand God's progressing revelation, we have to understand, again, some certain terms. So um, you have a list of... What's that? Do you have Sorry, question? Sure. The definition you just um, gave, is that on the, on the outline? The one that you gave yourself? No, Did the you one I gave myself. write that down. Oh boy, well, let me uh, see if I remember what I said. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought it was in your notes. It's on your no, notes. No, it's not well. in my notes. That it was, was more good. off the cuff. Comprehensive, that's all I got. It is. Comprehensive. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. Um, but you'll you see in the notes, there's a strong <laughs> emphasis on the historical development of God's redemptive plan. That's also important for us to understand that it is, it, it tries to understand the Bible uh, in, in the order in which it comes to us as Revelation builds upon itself and draws closer and closer to Christ. Um, and it also is important, too, various, like in a, the Ligon Duncan de- definition, you have different branches of theology that are used in this. He says exegetical theology, that basically just means uh, interpreting scripture, right? The way that we interpret scripture. Biblical theology, that's trying to understand the continuity that flows throughout scripture. And systematic theology, that's our doctrines of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of sin. It kind of combines all of that. So like I said, it can get a little bit tricky, but again, try to hang with me. This week is probably going to be the most challenging. Um, But some key definitions, hold on to this sheet, you know, so you can keep referring back to it. Um, Covenant, you know, for studying covenant theology, we've got to know what a covenant is. Um, Very simple. A co- uh, it's a commitment guaranteed by a solemn oath with threat of divine sanctions. It's more than just a promise. It's more than just giving someone your word. What really separates it is that that threat of sanctions. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later, but those divine sanctions, that there are real consequences for breaking this. You know, it's kind of like when... Congress passes a law, but there's no way for the law to be enforced, and it's just, you know, they pass it so they can say that they did it. What do you say about that? That it, you know, it has no teeth. It's a dead letter. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't actually do anything. That's, a covenant is the opposite of that. It's a promise. It's a pledge. It's, you know, a solemn oath, but it has real consequences for breaking, and so it's enforced, saying that you better fulfill these covenant commitments or else and then you have the penalties. Um, turn over to Hebrews chapter 6, because this is a place where we can see kind of this example, because it really is the sanctions, the threat of sanctions, that, uh, that truly make a covenant a covenant. They give it uh, a sort of legality and a formality that's not existent in just a promise. Now, again, we know as Christians, our word is supposed to be our word, right? Jesus says... To avoid taking O's, let your yes be yes and your no be no. However, when we're talking about a covenant, especially in terms of um, God relating to man, um, you have this, the, the official oath that threatens sanctions is necessary to take it from a promise to a covenant. That's a higher level. It's not just a contract that you can easily break. Um, so Hebrews 6 verses 13 through 18. It's talking about God and his relationship to Abraham. And listen to what it says. This is talking about God himself. The writer says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, of chapter 6, verse 13, 
For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited to obtain uh, obtain this promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What he's saying there is that, and, and we'll talk about this more when we get to Abraham, but you remember, God said to Abraham, you know, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a multitude of descendants. By you, I'm going to bless the nations. And then a few chapters later on, Abraham's complaining to God, saying, God, where, you know, I, I don't have a son. I don't have an heir. What are you doing? And what does God do? He takes that solemn oath. And we're going to talk more about that. But you remember, God, uh, you know, the, those animal carcasses are split up. And Abraham sees this vision of fire passing through the carcasses. That's that solemn oath of sanctions where God is saying to Abraham, if I don't do what I said I'm going to do, then I'm going to be torn to pieces like these animals are torn to pieces. That's what takes it from a promise to a covenant are those sanctions, that enforcement mechanism. Really important for us to understand. Um, Another thing to understand about covenant in Scripture especially uh, when we're talking about the covenants between God and man, they are divinely imposed. Uh, they are binding. You know, we don't negotiate with God. We don't get to make a counteroffer. We don't get to walk away from a covenant. God doesn't get to say, God doesn't say, I'm making my covenant with you. We don't have the right to say, no, thanks, God, not interested. Thanks anyway. When God makes a covenant, it is binding. He defines its terms. We don't get to negotiate with him. And it's always gracious. Um, even those covenants where um, there are works and stipulations of works, uh, you know, where God says, you must do this to receive these blessings or else you're going to die, something like that. Even that is a gracious covenant because God is under no obligation to enter that kind of relationship with us. Um, we, God doesn't owe us any sort of reward or any sort of blessing uh, you know, we, every covenant that God imposes is by nature gracious because he doesn't have to do it. Does that make sense? Okay. And take a look at what time it is. Okay. Try to get through the rest of this. Um, but the next section, we might, we might just get through the next section and then have to pause because this next section is probably the trickiest one of them all. The next concept for us to try to understand is typology. Um, and I'm sure, you know, some of you guys have heard of typology. Others of you might have no idea what that word means. There's a long definition in there that's very complicated from Greg Beale, who's great, but it's very complicated. I'm not even going to read it out loud because I think it'll just confuse people. It confuses me to even read it. But... You should read it once. Okay. <clears throat> so according to Greg Beale... I just don't want to scare you guys off with this definition. It's a study of analogical correspondence among revealed truths about persons, events, institutions, and other things within the historical framework of God's special revelation, which, from a retrospective view, are of a prophetic nature and are escalated in their meaning. Again, you guys probably didn't understand a word of that. (laughs) 
<laughs> let me try to let me try to bring it down for us because it's not as complicated as that definition makes it seem. It's really not. And as soon as I give an example, you guys are going to see it. Um, basically, typology is the study of some something specific. Beale says you know, persons, institutions, events, places. You know, you think about uh, the temple. You think about King David. You think about you know these specific things from the Old Testament um, that they are intentionally analogous. What that means is that God purposed them to be like something else. It's not just that oh this happens to have a vague resemblance. You know that this thing in the New Testament happens to vaguely resemble this thing from the Old Testament. It's intentionally similar. Something in the Old Testament that's intentionally similar to something in the New Testament that brings out a final fulfillment or a fuller meaning. Um, let me just give an example from the outset so you guys can kind of understand. Turn to John chapter 6. Just so you can get what we're talking about and realize that's really not scary. But important for us to understand uh, because this is, you know, again, Beale, he's great. He has this whole long like book that's like this big about all the Old Testament references in the New Testament and what it all means. And so he's brilliant, but can be a little bit tricky. Um, but if you look at John chapter 6 and check out verses 48 through 51. We know this passage. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that the one may so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's typology. You have the manna in the wilderness, a real thing, right? It was actually meaningful in its time, in its context. God gave the manna to his people in the wilderness to show them that he was all sufficient for their needs. They didn't have to go back to Egypt. He was going to provide for them. He was going to miraculously supply them with life. But they still died. One thing about typology that's important to understand is that there's a very... uh, it, It intentionally looks forward. It anticipates a greater fulfillment. So with the manna, yes, it served its purpose, but it didn't... It, it didn't save the people's lives. It didn't keep them from dying. It sustained them for a little while, but they still died. That's what Jesus says. So that's the type. What's called the anti-type is the fulfillment of it. And so Jesus says, I'm the true bread that came down from heaven. See, this one's nice and easy because Jesus says it very explicitly. I'm the bread from heaven. If you eat of me, you're not going to die. That's the that's what we're talking about. We're talking about typology. Something in the Old Testament that corresponds and is fulfilled by something in the New Testament. That's probably the most basic way to understand it. Um, But it is really important that we understand a few things because when you start thinking this way, yes, Leela, what's up? Uh, John 6, uh, 38 through 41, 48 through 51, thank you. Because when we start thinking in this way, it can be easy for us to drift into allegory, which is where we just start to kind of take things from the Old Testament and say, well, this kind of reminds me of this from the New Testament, so this must really be the meaning of this Old Testament passage. Typology is different from allegory 
because it understands and grounds the interpretation in the Old Testament context. So we understand the things in the Old Testament, even though they have a fuller meaning in Christ and in the New Testament, they have a very real meaning in their own context. They are significant and legitimate, understood in and of themselves. Um, Again, they're brought to an ultimate meaning in the New Testament, but in their own context, they are still very meaningful. And so we need to understand that if we're going to properly understand typology. We don't just say this is only meaningful because it points to Christ or because we find this fulfillment in the New Testament. It means something in itself. Do you have something to add? Yes, please. Example, that would be like the temple itself. Of course. So you have the temple in the Old Testament. Everything that meant to the people at that time, what they did, the rituals and so on and so forth. But ultimately, like Jesus says in John chapter 2, destroy this temple in three days I'll build mm-hmm. I'll, I'll raise it up. There's a couple of things going on there, but that's one of the ideas. That Jesus really was the fulfillment of the temple. Exactly. The temple itself, everything exactly. And so, yeah, we don't negate all the Old Testament in its context, we understand there's a fuller meaning to it. And so, so much of our understanding, the New Testament, the Old, the relationship between the two, is trying to discern what the things in the Old Testament are pointing forward to, how they're fulfilled in Christ. And again, there's a few things that mark genuine typology because it can be easy for us to get real happy with this and just to you know, start to find types of Christ all over the place where they're not really there. So we have to understand that there's a, a, a divinely uh, established connection. That means that, like I said before, and see, I'm even having a hard time trying to like articulate this. Um, like I said before, it's not like just this happens to resemble something in the New Testament, but God establishes this connection. You can see that um, there's a certain type of an escalation. Beale's definition used the word escalation. So the, the Old Testament type is meaningful in itself, but it's so much more meaningful when it reaches... Uh, its fulfillment in the new. There's a real escalation there. Um, and the fulfillment, the anti-type, it's not just a better version of the type. That's another thing that we have to keep in mind. Um, you know, Jesus wasn't just a better version of the manna or a better version of the temple. He was different. There's a correspondence, there's an analogy there, but he's different and better And so that's a really important thing, that types in the Old Testament reveal something greater and other than themselves. And so there's a qualitative difference in that the fulfillment is greater, and there's a quantitative difference. It's uh, the fulfillment is other. It's separate. It's not the exact same thing. What's up, Don? So it would be right to look at the sacrifices of the Old Testament uh, of the pools and goats and mm-hmm. to take away sin as God had orchestrated it to take place. Yes. But we see that Christ, the fulfillment of that, mm-hmm. finally takes away sin. Truly, exactly. And that's what, again, so much of Hebrews is about that, right? That yes, under the Old Covenant, the sacrifices themselves were meaningful and they were necessary. And, you know, the people of God had to make these sacrifices. That's the way that their sins were atoned for under the Old Covenant. But 
Those didn't actually take away sin. They didn't actually make people right with God. Only Christ did that. And Christ, he is a sacrifice, but he's not the same as the bulls and goats. He's different and he's greater. So keep that in mind. This is another... Um, uh, yeah, I'm going to skip that part. We'll, get, we'll, we'll do that later. We'll mm-hmm. skip over that. Do you guys have any more questions? I feel like if we go, I feel like if we go more and more deeply, it's probably going to get more confusing. Do you guys have uh, any more questions about typology right now, or you know anything that could be cleared up? I know it is a little tricky. Oh. Don't be scared. I promise you. This is going to make a lot more sense when we actually start going through scripture and we see it played out. It's a lot harder to talk about this stuff in like the kind of theoretical abstract. Exactly. It, it makes much more sense when we see it played out in scripture. Um, yeah, that's what I like. That. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. just like with the Old Testament sacrifices. That's why we don't, in Hebrews when it says Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. We don't need he fulfilled all the Old Testament sacrifices. That's why we don't bring, you know, a, a sacrifice. And exactly. Because Jesus' blood covered it once for all. And that's what all the sacrifices were showing. That's what's going to, we're going to have a once for all sacrifice that covers our sins. Exactly. Exactly, yes. This will make much more sense as we go through. But just so you, more just so you understand. So when I use the word type or anti-type, you guys know what I'm talking about. A type is the Old Testament picture. Anti-type is the New Testament fulfillment. Typology is this whole study of the way the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New and the way it corresponds. That's basically what I want is for you guys to kind of generally understand what we're talking about. So when I use those words later on in the class, you aren't, you know, sitting there with no idea what I'm, what I'm trying to say. That's basically the idea for tonight. Um, just a few more definitions to get to. We'll move through these ones more quickly. They're a little more straightforward. Um, federal head, that's another one that we're going to use uh, throughout. That is um, the one covenant representative uh, whom God deals with and connects all those under his headship to the covenant. Um, just for an example, Abraham was the covenant head, the federal head of the old covenant. And God said, I'm making this covenant with you and with all of your offspring. And so all of the Jews, no matter how far down the line until the time of Christ, when the new covenant was established, all the Jews, all the physical descendants of Abraham were automatically in that covenant because Abraham was the federal head. We're going to talk about that with Adam, that God made the covenant with Adam. And so everybody that Adam represented is in that covenant. This is an important uh, concept for us to understand. Again, this is the way that God connects people under the covenant to that one person whom he deals with. Um, A couple more definitions here. I want to be clear about the vocabulary that I'm going to use in this class. When I use the term covenants of works, I'm referring to a type of covenant. This can be a little confusing because some theologians refer to God's covenant with Adam as the covenant of works. I don't love that terminology. Um, I'm going to refer to that as the covenant of life. We'll talk about that next week. Um, When I say covenants of works, I'm referring to a specific kind of covenant in which the promised blessings are received on the basis of works done. So that means God says to the people, do this and receive this blessing. I will give this to you if you do these works. 
That's that kind of covenant. Covenants of grace, that's another kind of covenant. And that's a covenant in which the promised blessings are received on the basis of free grace as a gift. That's when God says, I promise on threat of you know, giving sanctions against myself that I'm going to do this for you, not on the basis of any works done. You can remember it in the simple uh, formula a works covenant, do this and live. A grace covenant, live and do this. That's a simple way to understand the distinction between the two. And that's going to be important. When we look at the different covenants, we want to be able to examine, is this based on works or is this a covenant of grace? We need to understand that distinction. Are these free promises or do we have to earn these blessings based on obeying these commandments? Um Kingdom or dominion, that's going to be a concept throughout, uh, really important. For our purposes tonight, just look at that definition or that you know explanation of what this concept is referring to. Covenants delegate authority. Uh, it, it grants dominion over a particular sphere under God. So when God makes a covenant with man, he is delegating uh, a, a, an amount of authority to those people to be exercised under him. So that's going to be important. And really the way you see on your outline there, kind of the structure of this class, we're going to be looking at this succession of covenants, but really throughout scripture, you have three major kingdoms. The kingdom of creation, in which you have the covenant of life, which God made with Adam, and the covenant with Noah. Then you have the kingdom of Israel, where you have the covenant with Abraham, then with uh, Moses, and then with David. And then the kingdom of Christ, where we have what's called the covenant of redemption and the new covenant in Christ's blood. Those are the three major kingdoms throughout scripture. And it's important for us to also keep in mind, all of them, uh, the kingdom of Christ is always and has always been the ultimate goal. That's kind of the difference between covenant theology and dispensational theology. Dispensational I don't want to get deeply into it tonight, but basically they say God had this succession of plans, and each time a certain plan didn't work, then he moved on to the next plan. And made exactly, made a new plan. Covenant theology claims that it's always been working toward this ultimate kingdom of Christ, but God revealed it uh, and, and accomplished this work through this redemptive historical process, the unfolding of it. And so you see these other two uh, kingdoms are subservient to the kingdom of Christ. They're there to bring about this final kingdom of Christ. Um, and the last thing that I'll mention here, I, I mentioned this a little bit. I have on here the section, what makes a covenant. We talked about sanctions. That's important. Um, I just want to mention real quick the idea of precepts and promises. That kind of plays into the the works versus grace that we just talked about. But every law is going to have certain, or I'm sorry, every covenant is going to have certain precepts, that is certain laws, certain rules, and each one is going to have certain promises, certain blessings that are, that are promised. Um, the distinction that we have to be able to make again is are the promises... Do we receive the promises based on the laws 
or do we receive the promises and then obey the laws? That's you know sort of things to keep in mind. Um, let me ask you guys: if you have any questions, anything that you want me to kind of repeat, please ask away. Yeah. Yes. Can you repeat the very first when you started saying about types? Types. When I first started saying about types, <laughs> the thing to know about types, the most important thing, types are an Old Testament, yes, types are the Old Testament picture, anti-type is the New Testament fulfillment, yes, of that picture, exactly, Um, and again, types are meaningful in themselves, they have a real meaning in their context, but their fullest meaning is in the New Covenant, in the the anti-type. Did you remember one of the examples? Yeah, the manna, if then Jesus said, I'm the true bread from heaven. That's an easy one to remember. You have the manna in the Old Testament. Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of that. I'm the bread that actually gives life. That's an easy way. So when we talk about types, try to think of that. Or like my dad said, the temple. You have the temple. Jesus said, I'm the true temple. It's going to be raised up in three days. Think about those things when we talk about types. Uh, any other questions? What's yeah. up, Michelle? I don't Please know if this is go right ahead. Silly or not? But it's almost like in the Old Testament, a lot of times he gave us a physical thing, like this thing is happening, mm-hmm. but there's a spiritual meaning to that. Mm-hmm. Is that? Yeah. Well, and that's kind of what I uh, was saying in the beginning that. God's plan, even for us today, is so incomprehensible, so much better than we can imagine, that really it is. It's through these pictures, these physical institutions and pictures that point to what God is doing in history. And, you know, it's important to remember, too, the the new covenant, it's not just spiritual realities, because, you know, the new covenant really, the resurrection, uh, you know, the blood sacrifice of Christ and then his resurrection is what brings the new covenant into force. And so there is definitely physical reality to it, but you're right that mostly the old covenant, you see these, um, you know, the, the physical institutions and uh, you know, the, the actual sacrifices being brought and the, you know, the, the, the structures, the temple itself made with stones, that corresponds to... It's like the Egypt, the sin... Yes, and we're gonna have a, we're gonna have a whole study later talking about especially in Exodus in the ta- in the tabernacle the types that we see All there the types, and even the more not as obvious ones at times like that rock in the wilderness that was yes. a physical rock that he hit but he's referring yes. to fleshly Christ and everything that Christ fulfilled with the water mm-hmm. the pole of being up in the wilderness you know yes. when Jesus said just as a serpent was lifted in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's a, a tight pointing to fulfillment and that spiritual reality behind it. Yeah. So yeah, man. And that's the way that God Christ teaches his that's, people. Yeah, the Old Testament people, that's how they learn him and look yeah. forward to Christ and by faith believe. All his people. <laughs> yeah, a lot of this will probably correspond to the study that Jackie Fisher does. It probably will because she's working through this discovery into the, the New Testament. What's up, Don? Um, so some of the... I'm going to be getting ahead of myself, but kind of just to affirm what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. Like with the different covenants and the different eras and the different kingdoms and which covenants were enacted in which kingdom, we can see like certain covenants, like the new covenant, retroactively taking place. For example, like how one comes to faith. Like 
Do you mean like how the Old Testament saints received faith, or how they received? They were saved by faith. Yes. But really, that's that's the new covenant. Yes, and yeah, and you are getting a little bit ahead because it's it can be a little bit tricky to think. Okay, yes, the new covenant was promised, but it wasn't ratified until the blood of Christ was shed. But you you're right in what you're saying that, like we mentioned on the outset. Salvation has always come by faith. In the Old Covenant, it was faith. That's why we have to think about the mystery of Christ. It was faith in the promises, in the gospel, as it was revealed as a mystery. So they only had slivers they could understand. But as they believed in those promises, as they understood them, that was that, that was counted to them as righteousness, just like Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now we look back and we see how it all adds up, but to them in the Old Covenant, it was still a mystery, and so they had to have faith in what was being promised. Like Hebrews 11 tells us. Exactly. Exactly. Any more questions? For all his elect people, like this is for his elect who would come to faith even by, by God's grace. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Anything else? All right, let me close us out in prayer. <laughs> Father, we do thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I do pray that you would please just help us, uh, even in our minds and in our way of thinking, to, um, to, to elevate ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would increase our capacity for understanding, that you would uh, give us eyes to see what your word reveals. And Lord, help us, even through some things that may be a little bit confusing, even as as your apostle says, some of the things in scripture are confusing, but Lord, I pray that we would labor to discern their meaning and try to understand what you're communicating to us, that we may have a a more rich and a more deep and abiding assurance of faith, Lord God, because our faith rests on the covenant relationship that we have with you through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I do pray that you would bless this study I pray, Lord, that you would please be with all of us as we leave here and keep us safe as we drive home. And, Lord, I do pray that you would be uh, just helping us to live out our faithfulness and live out our covenant obligations in our everyday life and all that we do. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.